Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm honored to be joined by former PepsiCo chair and CEO and the author of the book, My Life in Full, Indra Nui. Stay tuned. I want to start with a heartfelt thank you to everyone for listening and sharing in this Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing journey. I'm thankful that you're listening, sharing it with friends, subscribing to the podcast, and following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydarnika. It really means a lot. In thinking of the journeys we've taken and the road to get where we're going, and especially in this past year and a half, where the world seems like it's been turned upside down and made all of us hit the reset button quite a few times, I've grown to appreciate the stories that serve not only as reflections on accomplishments, but also as an instruction manual or a curriculum for tackling what's ahead. And this is exactly what I found in sharing a conversation with the wonderful Indra Nui, the former chair and CEO of PepsiCo, and reflecting on her career and life through her book called My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. Now, Indra's journey speaks to many global Indians, as she was raised in Chennai in a large and close-knit multi-generational family that prioritized and valued education, honesty, and a nurtured self-determination. And after coming to the United States when she was 23 to pursue an advanced degree, she found herself earnestly navigating through, well, work, family, and her future. And particularly as an Indian American, with so much reverence towards her past and her heritage, and with so much talent, drive, and ambition, there were many, many lessons learned along the way. Indra successfully reached the pinnacle of corporate achievement at a major American company in PepsiCo, serving for a dozen years as CEO and chair. She was the first woman of color and immigrant to lead a Fortune 50 company, and she famously transformed PepsiCo with a long-term vision, vigorous pursuit of excellence, and a deep sense of purpose. And as I read the book, I have to tell you that I was absolutely compelled to learn more and more not just about the decisions and forks in the road that she faced as a leader, but the terrifically personal stories about her grandfather, or Tata, earning a small Cadbury chocolate square from her mom or amma for excellent public speaking in the kitchen, her wonderful husband and family, her amazing love of sports and music, and of course, the many dualities that she's recognized in her own life. It's truly an amazing read, and it makes obvious why she's a respected and revered leader an amazing mentor, and an important voice in galvanizing future progress, especially for working women and families. I was humbled and grateful to catch up with her and share a conversation. I'm honored and thrilled to be joined by Indra Nui. Indra, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Abhay. I've heard a lot about your podcast, so I'm looking forward to hearing past episodes. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I have to tell you, I... I very much enjoyed reading My Life in Full and learning so much more about you as it spoke to me uh, so much. Uh, we share such a mutual admiration for family and 
Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you can see it, but my there's a sketch of my grandfather up there who played a huge role in my life. Um, and learning about your tata uh, was uh, wonderful as well. I, I have to tell you, though, we're on opposite sides of the field because I'm a lifelong Dodger fan, and um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if uh, is it if it's if that's okay. I'm not sure if that's going to be okay for us to be on this thing together. Well, I mean, I just want to say, 1978, when I came to this country and fell in love with New York Yankees. We kicked your butt. Yeah, I know. I know. But 1981, we, we paid the favor back. I know. But 1978, my formative year was the year that the Yankees prevailed over the Dodgers. There you Actually, go. I think there 78 you. and 79. Yeah, it was uh, 77, 78. Those were good Reggie Jackson years. That's the first You've time I... I remember actually even watching a World Series. So um, the Lasorda years, as I call it. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I loved every aspect uh, of the book and the entire narrative. And I kept thinking of this kind of elegant weave of ambition and fulfillment with duty and, and sacrifice. And, and I also thought of, of one part of it, it, you know, was writing the book itself and, and sharing this kind of manual of your experiences was that the ultimate small square Cadbury, um, you know, reward? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's interesting. I didn't want to do this book. I mean, that's a funny part. Uh, I'm a very private person and laying out my entire life in one place, uh, you know, revisiting certain painful moments is not something that I wanted to do. I don't think my family was thrilled that I was going to do it. Yeah. I started off wanting to do policy papers on, how to provide a care infrastructure for young women who want to grow in their careers or essential workers. But everybody said to me that if I wanted the, 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 my message to stick, I had to inform it with the arc of my life to mm. talk about how I went through big experiences. So this memoir, if you, uh, as you uh, observed, is not one of these tell all books, which has stories. It's more the arc of a life with the lessons. Yeah. And where did I have pivotal moments which gave me the realization that women should be educated, should have the power of the purse, that childcare is a critical need and paid leave is important. And so I came at it differently. Yeah. But it's not it's not easy to write a book. It is not. Did your family once uh, learning about it and, and maybe reading it themselves, did, did it give them some greater insight into who you were as well? I mean, my family is very close. So, you know, my immediate family, brother, sister. Yeah. And uh, there's nothing in the book that's new to them. As my brother said, this wasn't really your life story. This was more what stories you want to tell to inform policy. So it was yeah. a quasi textbook is the way he said it. Uh, I love that, yeah. <laughs> that's the way he uh, interpreted it. Uh, my mother probably read a few chapters and she said, do I really have to be in the book? I said, mom, you're my mother. Yeah. My kids... I may have read the book. I think they read pieces of it. Yeah. The only person who read it really through and through was my husband. And yeah. he was very constructive in the feedback he gave me. Sure. So I think my family basically said, as long as you're not telling stories and yeah. exaggerating anything, just write whatever you want. We trust you. you. You write so intimately about your experiences in India. And, and I know that this would be very resonant with certainly South Asian or Indian American yeah. uh, and immigrants in general. How, how much had nostalgia for those times been a factor in your journey or, or perhaps even was it an absence of nostalgia that actually fostered progress and, and success? I look upon my life in India with nostalgia because I loved the big family. I loved all the cousins coming. 
even if, if it's for two months in the summer, I loved it. Loved living in a home where people were coming in and out all the time. There was always somebody at home. I loved all that stuff. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I realized that the structure of families have changed. They're not the way they used to be. I also realized that if certain people in the family get a lot of success, it builds resentment also within families. So I began to understand family structures and the fractures within families and the issues in families. So in a way, I'm glad I'm not there now. I'm glad I'm in a different environment. But when I was a kid and growing up, where everybody was the same economic strata, somehow it worked. Yeah. Do you remember, I, I always you know, talk to my own parents about their journey here, and they tell me about their first days here. Um, one thing I haven't asked them, and I'll, I'd love to ask you right now, do you remember what you were doing and what you were going through the day before that flight? Actually, you know, the funny way I was, I do remember because on the one hand, I was very sad to leave my family. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I'd been with them the first 23 years of my life and to go so far away. And remember those days you had to call long distance and watch right. your pennies. None of these uh, smartphones existed. Right. Ubiquitous connectivity. Yeah. And so um, the fact that I wasn't going to see them all the time or talk to them whenever I wanted made me sad. On the other hand, uh, and I was going to miss my little brother. That was going to be my yeah. big miss. Yeah. But on the other hand, I was filled with excitement and anticipation because the U.S. had been built up in my mind as something larger than life. Yeah. yeah. And I was coming here with great excitement and anticipation and the, the joy of the unknown and the fear of the unknown. Yeah. And uh, so I had mixed emotions when I got on the plane. And I loved your story about Connecticut versus uh, Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, you know, one of the most and maybe th these were among the times where you were experiencing this for the first time. But among the most overt and sort of obvious reminders of our Indianness is yeah. just your name. And in your own head, do you think or even respond any differently when someone calls you Indra versus Indra? No, some people call me Andrea. Some people struggle to even pronounce the name Indra. I don't care. I mean, yeah. I know who I am. Call me whatever you want. Yeah. And uh, as long as you're looking at me and calling me, I'll respond. Yeah. And even if you call me, if somebody calls out Andrea, I turn around and see if they're calling me. So, you know, I know my name. I know who I am. And I really don't care because, you know, I mean, we try to make too big a deal out of people not making the effort to get your name right, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Our names are different. It takes a little getting used to. Yeah. So, okay. So if people don't get it quite right, big deal. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Indra Nuyi. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Samir Desai, and you can check out ruckusavenueradio.com for more information and for the latest on station programming and more. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with Indra Nuyi. 
let me ask you this. So I, I've become an instant, almost super fan of Raj, your husband. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Very much appreciated any Raj mentions or moments in the book. Uh, I, I, I was like, I was waiting for when he was going to, you know, have another moment of uh, surprise or appearance yeah. or clarity. How, how do you both continue to empower each other um, even now? Well, you know, he's a CEO of a uh, NGO and he works and travels all the time. Uh, my point is, you know, it's like, uh, each of us help each other out. Even when I was CEO and he was a partner in consulting or, you know, off turning around startup companies and gone for two, three months at a time. My only point is our commitment was to the family and our commitment was to the marriage that both of us would stay completely committed to the marriage, whatever happened. And as long as we had that faith and trust in each other, uh, we realized that we both had to fulfill our, uh, you know, not ambitions as much as it was our, thirst to do something to keep yeah. the brain occupied. And, you know, I give Raj all the room. He gives me all the room. Sometimes he'll say, look, I can't be there. Or I'll say, I can't be there. We both understand. Nobody holds it against the other. And, uh, you know, our commitment is just to each other and the family. I was going to say just an amazing synchrony of, of this and, and sort of an understanding of that. You have so many examples of dualities. Yeah cricket and baseball and a sari versus a business suit. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I was struck by the, the Padma Bhushan and the State Department uh, uh -huh. award even standing between President Obama and Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. Mm. Have these lanes eventually merged into a more singular experience for you now, given all these different dualities that sort of created your experiences or, or do they remain separate in your mind? Well, there were lots of dualities, the American versus Indian, how versus humility, my mother telling me to leave the crown in the garage, yeah. uh, putting a foot on the brake and foot on, foot on the accelerator. So that's how I grew up, you know, with all these dualities. I think the big difference, Abe, is that I mean, if you put my birth and my growing up in context, I was born eight years after India got independence. Think about it. Early, early in the evolution of India as a country when they were trying to figure out what the country was going to be, what are they going to do with women, education, everything was being figured out. Right. So as I progressed and then I came to the U.S., I was among the early people to reach the top levels of a company. There were very, very few senior executives, very few. And so many, many times I was the only woman in senior management, in the seats of power, in the boardroom. When I became CEO, I was among a handful and I think I was a senior most woman to run a Fortune 50 company. Yeah. Somebody even reminded me that that record has not been broken even today because no woman has run a company with a market capitalization bigger than what I ran. Yeah. I didn't know that. Fareed Zakari, I think, reminded me. So you don't think about the accolades. You think more about the job to be done. Yeah. So even though I was operating in a completely, diff completely different environment, I had all of my values taught to me as a kid. If you commit to do something, do it right. Be a lifelong student. Focus on the job, not on yourself. You know, all those lessons that I was taught as a kid from my tata all come back. And so I think I was a good blend of both cultures yeah. and retained the best of my growing up and lessons, but took on the best of what the United States had to offer me. And I blended it into my own version of what it what worked for me. 
such a wonderful embrace too, because that I would imagine that it only coming to terms with that very quickly and being able to then take the success and, and really zoom with it probably was so propelling. And there's so much in the book about uh, support and care ecosystems around mm-hmm. you in your life, whether it's your extended family, whether it's, it's Helen Hadley Hall uh, at Yale <laughs> or, or, or even, you know, assistants and neighbors and nannies, you know, for working mothers and parents today, as connected as we are with so many, so much, you know, around us, uh, do you think building these ecosystems is, is actually more challenging in a far more digital and sort of siloed environment? It's almost impossible, I mean, I think one of the biggest losses in this world of technology is that we build the connections to the technology as opposed to the social structures around us. Yeah. You know, uh, we don't go to parks, we don't go to civic centers or libraries or uh, grocery stores as much. So we don't meet other people from the community. There's no linkages. Yeah. And I think for some reason, it's critically important we re commit to building these social infrastructures because we're taking the human out of the humanity mm. if we just deal with the computer. In fact, I don't know if anybody's coined a new word for um, humanity, which doesn't have the word human in it. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we have to go back and think about taking some hours in the day to build those human connections. Yeah. Otherwise we could, we're creating a different uh, ilk of people. I mean, uh, where was I a couple of days ago? There were four people had dinner, family for dinner in the restaurant in Greenwich. Nobody talked at dinner. They kept looking at their phones and all four of them, husband, wife, and two kids. Yeah. I'm just sitting here going, that's interesting. Why did they come to the restaurant as a group? And so if that's what we're going to connect, what can be so important that everybody focused just on their iPhones? Well, and that, that human connectivity in that way is so different to cultivate when you're really trying to navigate through relationships. And right. I mean, I don't think I'm wrong in this. And I don't think you can build these kinds of systems in the metaverse. That's exactly right. Right. They have to, they have to really exist already. Yeah. I think they're looking at creating false avatars that can help you connect. Yeah. As of, uh, you know, when uh, certain countries start to develop a minister for loneliness, just to deal with yeah. the loneliness of people, you know, that, Absolutely. We should learn from all that and say, how do we rebuild family structures? How do we build social infrastructures? How do we put family at the center of future of work? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I know that the Surgeon General, uh, you know, Dr. Murthy has definitely talked about loneliness being such a huge uh, epidemic. Yeah, his book talks about all that. Yeah. You know, in, in sharing your very pioneering corporate journey, you reveal so many uh, almost tender vulnerabilities and the kind of courageous spirit that you had harnessed to tackle them. And, and times when you had to almost shield your emotions very privately, um, you talk about uh, weeping in, a, in the washroom and, and then reapplying your makeup to, to go through, you know, as a, a father of a daughter who's just, you know, emerging into the uh, world and also have you having dealt with racism and bullying and in various forms, how do we make it so that in 2021 and going forward, women who are advancing and, and especially women of color, yeah. um, they, they won't need battle armor to, you know, as a passport to corporate success or even to community success. Mm. How do we create structures that, that allow for that? 
My plea to people every time I've gone around talking to people is that any person, black, white, brown, I don't care what skin is, I'm just saying any individual, if your daughter or your sister or your wife or your niece came home from work and said, you know, I got bullied today or I got uh, talked over and they rolled their eyes when I was talking, your immediate reaction is, I'm mad like hell, I want to punch him out or I want to do this. Why is it we allow that same sort of behavior to happen in our workplaces. So if we were to look at every employee as member of your family yeah. and treat them that way, I think we will not have all of this bad behavior in the workplace. Secondly, I mean, men still hold most of the positions of power. Men need to come to the table because we're not talking about, uh, you know, allowing women to uh, succeed because you're doing them a favor. It's not a social issue. Right. It's a talent issue. We need the best and brightest deployed in the service of the country. And if you think like an economist and you look at the incredible talent of women who are hungry, who are driven, who want to succeed, who want to be, uh, you know, ascending, why not use them in the workforce in a yeah. productive way and give them all the tailwinds, don't put headwinds on them. Yeah, it's a shame. We, we, we are not um, tapping into the incredible resources mm-hmm. that are out there and, and really harnessing in that way sort of so, so many in our community. Right. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with former CEO and chair of PepsiCo, Indra Nui. This is DJ here and you can check out Ruckus Avenue Radio for more information and for the latest on station programming and more. I'm Abhay Dandekar and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with Indra Nui, the former chair and CEO of PepsiCo and author of the book, My Life in Full, Work, Family and Our Future. I also found that so many of the themes of the book transcend multiple generations of Americans uh-huh. and, and certainly Indians who are, who have settled now globally. What do those in control of power and policy, you know, need to enact to create some more kind of organic intergenerational community? So, you know, one of the big imports from Asian countries is this whole multi-generational living. The aging population needs care. Young children need oversight or care. And there's got to be some sort of an intergenerational responsibility where everybody looks out for everybody else. In many towns and cities across the country, it doesn't allow for multi-generational homes to be built in the same property. Mm. Zoning laws have to change. Uh, It's how do you build a parental home on your property where they have independence, but they're still connected. Right. Um, You know, uh, housing structures have to change. Somebody's got to design communities where the elderly can live with the young people and they can all contribute to the betterment of the uh, younger people. 
Yeah. And maybe when the kids grow to a certain age, you can move out of that community to another when you're an empty nester and let the next card, you know, cohort of people come in. I think we're going to have to think about all this differently. I think the answer so far has been when people age, they can live on their own or go into a senior care center, which is, you know, an option. I'm not sure. knocking that, but I'm just saying all the studies show that when older people live around young people, they live happier, longer, healthier. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think we have to really think through how are we going to care for our aging? We have 10,000 people turning 65 every day, the boomer generation. Yeah. As I age, I, I'm very good to my kids. I keep wondering how are they going to take care of me? I don't want to be a burden on them. Yeah. But, you know, what kind of intergenerational responsibility are they going to have? Right. Um, right. So I think the time has come to have, for us to have some real dialogues on this. But let me turn this another way. As we age and we need caregivers, those caregivers are going to be largely women. If we don't find a way to have all of these essential worker women supported for their caregiving needs, I don't know how they're going to come and help us. You write and have spoken about all of these lessons of your journey in, in the business world and, and that arc that you mentioned of how this came about. You know, as today, the knowledge and the blueprints of entrepreneurship and success seem to be more and more democratized and diverse at different pathways and, and yeah. not necessarily bound by, by institutions so much anymore. How does, how do you think your story harmonizes with this, with a new generation of folks literally entering that arena now? I think, um, let me speak to the immigrant groups and the diaspora first, because yeah. that's where it's immediately relevant. I think for the, for many years, they've looked at me as a role model. Okay, yeah. fair enough. I was the first person to break all of these barriers for them. And um, as a woman from South Asia who went to run a mainstream company, not even a tech company. Um, so if you're going to look at me as a role model, here's my story. Yeah. And let's talk about what aspects of the story you should be following or learning from versus other facts you say can't even relate to it. Um, my experience is that they can relate to most of those experiences. Yeah. And so I think this book was not written to just read and zip through. This book was written to take a chapter, pause. What do this chapter say? Go to chapter two, read, pause, discuss. So this book was written, um, as my brother put it, as a textbook also, in a way, educational. Yeah. And that's why I always say this book is not my book, it's our book. Yeah. Because I was trying my best to say, this is what it takes yeah. Get to the top. This is what it takes to keep the family and all going. So go in with your eyes open and understand all the help you need. And, and you know, speaking of, of pausing and, and that reflection, I love that idea of sort of like taking it almost as like a curriculum. Yeah. Thinking of it that way. You, you mentioned the story about, um, you know, overdoing it and, yes. and sadly missing your neighbor Mary's funeral or a moment where you said, quote, uh, I sometimes I wish I were wired differently. Do you create time and space more now for self-reflection? And, and do you have to practice that ability to pause and sort of make your boundaries and limits known to others? I don't, I don't have that skill yet because yeah. I enjoy what I'm doing. Everything I'm doing, I enjoy. If I don't enjoy something, I don't do it. Right. I enjoy everything I'm doing. Um, I'm thinking more about 
How can I make a difference? How can I make an improvement here? How can I do it there? So I find that I fill in every moment yeah. because I feel like there are so many issues to be addressed, Abe, yeah. that if all of us who can help address these issues don't address it, it's a crime. It's a wasted um, a power that you have. And so I'm, this is why I say, I don't know why I'm wired this way. Yeah. <laughs> well, but uh, I you, you wrote so almost lovingly about uh, some of the mentors that you've had. Yeah. Uh, and, and one uh, really spoke to me as, as someone who's made some of these, I would say, uh, episodes before George Fisher, the, the CEO of Motorola, yeah, um, yeah. you know, who was helping you to quote, be careful about throwing hand grenades <laughs> um, and, and yeah. that you may turn people off even when you mean well, you know, do, do you in the same spirit of wanting to do things and, and really sort of, you know, be present and engaged and, and continue to help support people? Do, do you sometimes find that, you know, the occasional hand grenade still goes out there? That I'm very conscious of. I'm very, very careful about how I send messages because I realized from that Motorola experience that my abruptness was not a talent. It was more a, a liability. So I'm very careful about that. Yeah. Where I think I have to be careful is when I go into too much detail, I don't want people to think that I don't trust them. Mm. I'm doing it out of respect for their work. I read everything. I go into detail, um, but I don't wear the detail on my sleep. Sure. I go into detail and then I step back and I go, okay, they're in the right direction. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more, um, I feel the responsibility of any job I do. And yeah. I say, look, uh, if I put my signature on a piece of paper, people are expecting me to read it and understood what I signed. I loved your narration of performance with purpose. It, it was very Bill Clinton-esque in that, you know, I love the getting micro and granular. Uh, about it, but then also the macro zooming out kind of concomitantly. Mm -hmm. Was this concept just a, another amazing innovation as a dynamic and thoughtful CEO? Was or or was it just simply the natural progression and manifestation and expression of of your own character and who you are? Probably both. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did it for the latter. Uh, people at that point said I was nuts. Five years, six years later, they said, oh, she was so prescient. She was the first person who did it. So based on what they said, six years later, you could say I was brilliant. I didn't think of it that way when I did it. Yeah. I just did it because I felt that we needed to do this as a company to make sure the company would be successful well into the future. So I did it with the eye towards the future and making sure PepsiCo was retooled for yeah. the future. So I did it from that place. Sure. I didn't do it for social good. I didn't do it because it was corporate social responsibility. I did it as a strategic direction for the company. Well, and in, in that way, in your opinion, that kind of truism to yourself and also to your company and your sense of both a sense of who you are and, and who the company you, you know, you want to be, how do you think leaders best cultivate or engender trust? Um, I think you have to put the company before you. Very often, CEOs in particular, the job goes to their head. It becomes all about them. I think it should be all about the company, the future of the company, the success of the company. Don't focus so much on how much money are you going to make when you are running the company and when you retire. Talk about, have you built the bench? Do you have great succession? 
Is the company making all the right investments? Are you managing the company for the duration of the company rather than the duration of the CEO? And so if you think of it that way, uh, your whole orientation will be different. People struggle to do that because it means you're a big part of the company as opposed to I work, I'm a pair of hands in the company. Right, right. I, I wanted to ask you this for working parents or the woman who is entering the, the workforce or in a managerial position. Imagine that they're getting to know you for the first time, either by reading your book or hearing you speak or, or getting to meet you. What do you hope they take away? Or how do you hope they feel after having gotten to know you this way? So, you know, I mentor um, 20 high school kids from the local area. And uh, I have so many others that I know from the past or who I've gotten to know that I serve as mentor. Um, what they would say is that when they come down, come and talk to me, I give them my undivided attention. I listen to what they have to say. Uh, I'm not afraid to give them honest feedback, but then I help them get to a better place. To me, the best example is the 20 high school kids I mentored. Uh, I saw how they all evolved from the time they started with me and six months later. More confidence. Uh, look, standing up. Uh, they write to me saying, Mrs. Dewey, I was so afraid I wouldn't, you know, she couldn't see her shadow. I'm in the school play and I'm auditioning now for the next semester school play. Every morning I do what I, you ask me to do. I look in the mirror and say, I can do it. Yeah. Um, or somebody else will say, um, you know, you took me from being the shy person to saying that you believe in me. And so now I'm uh, much more confident. You can see it in them. And so I think our job is to cultivate and nurture that next generation. Our time is up right now. We have to worry about the next generation. So I'm spending all my time nurturing, developing, coaching, helping this next generation in every which way that I can every which way. Well, I'm grateful for it because we're all better off and I'm so appreciative of your time. And thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back and join us again. Thank you, Abe, and look forward to meeting you in person sometime. I would love that. Are, are you a, a coffee or masala tea person? Peabody, Peabody seeds coffee. I am like genuine South Indian coffee, filter coffee. <laughs> well, perfect. Let, let's make it happen. You got it. Great. Pleasure. Thank you for doing this, Abe. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. And to learn more about Indra, her life, her work, and her book, please visit indranui.com. I can't seem to stop head bobbing these days because of TikTok, but hey, I'll make up any excuse to play this great hook. It's the end of the year, and so the show goes on a little break, but we'll be sure to usher in 2022 with new conversations as the antidote to apathy. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darnikar.